Just like household bugs that scatter when a light switched on, all kinds of different images immediately begin to scurry through our mind when I mention the word prayer, don't they? Uh, nearly all of us have some kind of preconceived notion about prayer, what it is, what it should be. And I thought uh, it might be helpful to get things kicked off this morning to uh, take a, a brief look at how our culture has stereotyped prayer with a movie clip. And so in this scene from the movie Meet the Parents, Greg is going to be asked by his future father-in-law, Jack Burns, to say grace before dinner. Let's take a look at it. Prayer, as we have experienced it, can certainly be funny or disappointing, perhaps confusing, maybe boring, maybe irrelevant. Perhaps we've experienced it as memorable, powerful, even life-changing. Catholics know the Rosary and the Hail Mary very well. Mainline denominations repeat the Apostles' Creed as a prayer. Pentecostals are accustomed to binding the devil when they pray. Uh, uh, Charismatics often claim the promises of God when, when they pray. We've all experienced saying grace at meals, and we've all got other kinds of preconceived notions about what prayer is or should be in our experience. As Melissa shared, last week we launched a brand new sermon series on prayer that I've titled The Amazing Possibilities of Prayer. Our conviction is that God intended for us to experience prayer as vital, as life-giving, and life-changing. I shared our three hopes for our five or six weeks together. First is that our prayer foundations would grow to be clear, biblical, and compelling. Secondly, that our practices would be simple and effective. And then thirdly, that our experiences in prayer would grow to reflect all that Jesus really intended. We began moving towards those goals last week as we unpacked our prayer baggage. That is, we were beginning to identify all of our excuses, our preconceptions, and we began echoing the request of the apostles to Christ, Lord, teach us to pray. In his response, Jesus gave his followers a simple model for prayer that we have since called the Lord's Prayer. It's found in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 11. And the model for prayer is actually sandwiched between several prohibitions. We looked at Jesus' admonition not to be, uh, not to pray to be seen and heard by people. That has to do with motive. Secondly, to not pray repetitiously or with a formula in mind. That has to do with our manner. That prayer is not a fetish or a charm and works by its own presence. Thirdly, we saw that Jesus said, don't pray with any sense of expectation with resolved uh, unforgiveness in your heart. So that has to do with mode, as in the state of our heart. So Jesus is addressing motive, manner, and mode. Now this morning, we're going to begin looking at the meat of the Lord's Prayer sandwich as we uh, unpack his model in prayer. So before we do that, let's do what he told us to do. Let's pray.
Lord, we are humbled and grateful, start of a brand new week for your gifts of grace and goodness. You are good all the time. And we thank you that we can be reminded of that this morning. Thank you for life and breath. Thank you for the freedom to to gather with friends and family and new acquaintances to celebrate your purposes in our life and our family and our community and on the earth. We bless your name and pray the prayer you taught us to pray. May your kingdom come, may your will be done right here in our lives. Not just in this room, Lord, but even right next door with Vineyard Kids and in our, in our lives and our families where we work and live and play and go to school. We want to be your people representing the life of your kingdom in an authentic and genuine and powerful way. Pray that you'd put power on your word to our lives today in your name. Amen. When I was young, uh, my neighbors, the Dooley brothers, and my cousins and I used to put together models. They were uh, replicas, plastic replicas of cars and trucks and airplanes and ships that we would glue together carefully. We would paint them. We would put decals on them. And then we'd blow them up with firecrackers and make fires out of them. Models are scaled-down replicas. They are shrunk-down versions of the real thing. A model represents something that's much larger, that's, that's more powerful, real, and lifelike. And when the Lord gave us a model for prayer, it was kind of the same thing. It's a, a shrunk-down version of a real thing. Uh, He intended for us to experience something much, much larger and more powerful and more lifelike than merely repeating the words. He he intended for us to to experience something larger and and, and more powerful and more dramatic and and more uh, important. But to get things started this morning, I thought it might be helpful for us to read or repeat the Lord's Prayer again. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you might want to open to Matthew chapter 6. It will also be on the screens. And we're going to actually pray the Lord's Prayer together as a way of kind of reacquainting ourselves with the model. So are we ready? Let's just say it out loud again together. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need, and forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the in most of your translations in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, we actually add the last phrase, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. It's, it's found in only a few of the original manuscripts. But we'll notice that the Lord's Prayer contains six parts. There are five specific petitions or themes and one concluding praise. There's the, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, deals with identity. That is, we, that we would be experiencing the fullness of love and joy and blessing that's rooted in our identity as his sons and daughters and in who God reveals himself to be. The second part has to do with the kingdom. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And this is where we're uh, desiring to experience breakthroughs of God's kingdom. That is his mercy, his love, his truth, and his power in our lives and in our world around us. The third part has to do with provision. Give us today the food we need. You might more normally recall that as give us uh, today our daily bread. And that has to do with experiencing the fullness of God's provision in every aspect of our life. The fourth component has to do with relationships. Forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who sin against us. And this has to do with our desire to experience full and complete, whole and healthy relationships in life. The fifth prayer has to do with protection. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one experiencing the fullness of God's protection and provision in our daily journey. And then the prayer concludes in the sixth part with an affirmation of God's goodness, his power, and his presence, a prayer of praise. Now, we're going to unpack each of these sections in the weeks to come. We'll look at these different demarcations or sections or parts, whatever you might want to call them. But I like to think of the prayer as an accordion. Some of you may be familiar with that instrument, others aren't, but it is a, you've probably seen one on television or heard one and didn't maybe even know what it was. But an accordion expands and contracts and the, and the air in the billows pushes through and makes sound. Now, each, each part of the prayer, like an accordion, can expand or contract all the while making the music of prayer to the Lord's ears, okay? Now, remember in prayer, we are simply directing our thoughts and our words to God. We're also listening to Him about the life that we're living together. That's all prayer is. It's nothing more complicated than that. And the Lord's Prayer gives us the tracks for our words and thoughts to run on. It's the model. It's a a way for us to connect to God. Now, when your time is very limited, you could merely say the part in the prayer. When the accordion collapses and you don't have much time, you could just say the prayer like we just did. You know, it takes you 15 or 20 seconds. Although my suspicion is that Jesus did not intend for prayer merely to be repeated. And that's to be understood because in his Lord's Prayer sandwich, his one warning was, don't think you're going to be heard just because you repeat a prayer. So mere repetition is not probably the spirit in which Jesus gave the prayer. But if that's all you had time for, better to pray this prayer than anyone else. Because that's what Jesus said. When you pray, pray this way. But on other occasions, your prayer accordion may expand and you'd have more time. And so then you could pray each part of the prayer for maybe one minute or two or five, or maybe even ten. And and that prayer would expand to fill maybe 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, when I ride my Schwinn Airdyne in the winter months in the basement, my, my scheduled routine is 22 minutes. It's about all I can handle. But what that means is I have about four minutes for each section of the Lord's Prayer. You can see I'm a captive. I can't go anywhere. I'm on the bicycle. So it's a great, great time to break it down in four-minute increments. But then you don't have to pray each each section of the prayer with equal emphasis either. In some cases, you may you may just 
pray the, the single sentence prayer, but then you're going to camp out on more likely like the forgive us our debts as we forgive others part. Because that's, that seems to be the part we need like so often. Maybe for you it's the kingdom come or that the Lord would give you your daily bread or help you resist temptation. You can, you can camp out on any one of the sections in the prayer as long as you need. Just remember this, that a model is just a skeleton or a frame. They're just rails to run on. It actually speaks of something much larger, more powerful and life-giving than the, the model itself. It points to something larger. Like the recipe paints a picture of a meal. Don't settle for just the recipe. Go for the meal in prayer. So let's begin unpacking the Lord's Prayer in part one. You recognize it in other translations as, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, King James. New International Version of the Bible is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I like the New International Reader's Version. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. Now, Jesus said to begin prayer with an acknowledgement of relationship. Our Father in heaven. And the very first thing that I notice is that the opening salvo in the prayer is our Father, not my Father. Relationship with God commences in prayer with an affirmation of community. We belong to something much larger than ourselves. God is our Father, not just my Father. While relationship with Jesus is very personal, it is never individualistic. God intended for us to live in a community. God is building and establishing and relating to a family, a people. We're a vital part of a long, unbroken line of saints from every age and every culture around the whole world who live in community, known as the local church, who have prayed this prayer as an expression of their life together. That is powerful. And as God the Father's children, I like to think that we're never alone. The first word in the prayer communicates to me a sense of place and importance and belonging in God's family. No Lone Ranger Christians in God's family. Rather, we live vitally connected to his family, and we're, we're in community in a local church. Our Father. We can call him Father. And this is significant for many, many reasons. Jesus tells us to begin prayer. In answer to the question, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, here's how you're supposed to pray. Pray our Father. So he, he begins his instruction by saying, acknowledging God as your Father. Not as the sovereign Lord, as the creator and sustainer of the universe, as the soon coming king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the all-wise, all-knowing, soon coming king, the God who sits on the throne of heaven and earth. No, he is all of those things. But Jesus said, begin your prayer by saying, Father. I think that's compelling. He is all of those things. But, but Jesus said, when you begin to pray, address God as your Father. Father is a very endearing term, isn't it? It, it speaks of a close and personal relationship. Father is someone who 
who loves you, who knows you, someone you can trust. And so the, the very concept of being able to, to draw close to God as Father in intimacy and in a personal way is, is, is absolutely revolutionary at the time when Jesus taught. As, as he compared how prayer was experienced uh, in the culture that worshiped pagan deities, impersonal and not close, distant and far. Jesus said, experience relationship with God in an intimate and personal way, and you can even address God as your father. Now, friends, this does not mean that you necessarily have to have had a great earthly father to either appreciate prayer or have a relationship with God. That is not a prohibition. Jesus did not qualify his instructions on learning how to pray to say this only applies for those of you whose childhood experience with your father was not traumatic. Not at all. It's a general invitation. And without minimizing the difficult circumstances that you may have had with your earthly father, God can redeem that relationship so you can approach God as your father, unlike any father that you may have had or experienced. As followers of Jesus, we can know that we are God's child. He is our father. He is everything that you might imagine a good earthly father to be. Kind, compassionate, caring, encouraging, challenging, gentle, but firm, uh, always protecting, always providing, forgiving, never overlooking a teaching moment. He is all of those things, even if your experience with your father was diminished from that those kinds of experiences. And God wants you to experience his love as the father. You know, when you think about it, uh, perhaps more than any other attribute marked that marks fathers, it's it's love for children that that we think of. Uh, a father's love for his kids is inexhaustible and never-ending. It's not conditioned on what they do or how they behave. Our, you know, our kids will always be our kids, no matter how old they are, no matter where they are, what they choose to do with their lives, or how they reciprocate to the extension of our love. They'll always be our kids. Spent time with my parents yesterday doing a reverse garage sale. Got to spend the morning with them. And it's it's neat to know that uh, despite the bumps and, and roadblocks in our relationship, that my mother and father still pray for each one of their six kids and grandchildren and grandchildren, great-grandchildren by name every day. That's a way that they tangibly express their love for us. And uh, they want each one of us as kids and grandkids and great-grandkids to do well, to prosper, to be in health, and to experience God's favor and blessing in our life. And Jesus uses this analogy of parental love and parental desire for your kids to experience blessing as, as the basis of comparison for the love of God the Father for us as his children. We saw the verse last week. I'll remind you what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone? If they ask you for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? Jesus uses 
uh, what is what is known as a typical Jewish construction of the comparative superlative, the how much more, to make his point. You think you know how to give good gifts to your kids because that's how you're wired? Uh, you don't know anything how much greater God desires to give good things to you. Now, it is important to be perfectly clear. All people were created by God, but God is only the father of the men and women and children who have been born a second time by his spirit. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, uh, John says that to all who believed him, Jesus, and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. And John reiterated this truth in, in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, where he writes, we, we see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and this is what we are. So when we turn from a life of sin and selfishness and turn to Jesus in surrender and submission, at that very moment, the Bible says that we experience a birth from above or a second birth. We are reborn by the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, God changes, the dynamic of our relationship changes from our experiencing God as creator to experiencing God as father. And it's all because he loves us. God the Father wants us to experience that love and become his son or his daughter. And if that's never happened, you could you could experience that conversion, that change, that dynamic change even today. It happens the, when you do what Jesus said in, in, in John chapter 1, verse 12, when you believe, when you, you place your faith in who he is. Now, friends, this isn't the same as deciding or dedicating yourself to begin to go to church or to turn over a new leaf and, and to decide to quit smoking or stop cussing or, or to uh, you know, get religion or to clean up your life. All of those things are admirable. But that's not what being born again means. Being born again is to experience the love of the Father and for your inner nature to fundamentally change as you're touched by the love of God and He becomes your Father. It's rooted in God's inexhaustible and never-ending love. In the parable of the of the lost son, Jesus described what the love of God the Father is like. In that story, the younger of two sons was disobedient and rebellious, chose to take his share of the family inheritance, leave and squander it on empty, vain, riotous, sinful living. After having spent his money, Jesus said the young the young boy comes to his senses and decides to return to his father and ask for a place in the family estate as a servant, no longer worthy of being called a son. And the younger son is thinking that his badness is his problem. That is, he's convinced his destructive deeds have put him in such a place that he no longer uh, deserves to be called a son anymore. But God in the story is like the aged father who violates every sense of propriety and goodwill, uh, dignity in the, in the culture. He hikes up his robe and seeing his son a long way off, begins to run towards his rebellious, wayward son and says, Son, I welcome you back into the family. He cuts off the son's rehearsed speech and says, Stop, I welcome you in. I'm not holding your past against you because you are my son. 
And then the party begins, and, and the father then turns to the aged, the elder son, and tells him to come on in. Now, the older son thought that the father loved him because of how obedient he'd been. He'd stayed home and, and, and did the work. That's, but somehow the older son thought that he was deserving because of all the work he's done. And the father tells him, no, that you don't have it right either. I've always loved you regardless of what you did. Everything I had was yours. You didn't ever have to work for it. And so the point in the story that Jesus is making is that God's love cannot be earned, older son, nor can it ever be taken away, younger son. God's love is, period. Wow, that is powerful and revolutionary. God's love cannot be earned, neither can you ever lose it, can ever be taken away. God's love is. It is the most powerful life-changing force in all of the universe. Then Jesus continues, and he says, you're to pray, God, our Father, in heaven. Now, Jesus does not mean that as we pray, we should imagine in our mind's eye that God exists in some faraway, distant, non-physical, immaterial place, removed from us by a great distance, uh, perhaps not even quite sure what's going on down here. Rather, the words in heaven speak of Jesus' rulership over everything. Now, it might be helpful for you to remember, as you read the Bible and relate to God, that there are two primary streams of revelation in, in the Bible about the character of God. That is to say, God reveals himself in two primary ways, both equally true at the same time. The first is as a loving father, as we've already seen. And in this sense, God is imminent. That means he is close, personal, and at hand. He's approachable. But secondly, God reveals himself as a holy king, represented in this text by the language in heaven, our Father in heaven. He is the holy king. And as you read your Bible this year, you will frequently stumble across a verse like Psalm 47 too. For the Lord most high is awesome. He is a great king of all the earth. It's a common theme that runs through the Bible. Jesus is the king who rules the entire universe. He rules, he reigns, he has the power to act. And in this sense, God is transcendent. He is other than we are. He's distant. He's powerful. He is both imminent and transcendent. And we live in the tension of these two revelations, God as Father, God as King, trans transcendent and imminent, close and personal, far and powerful. We live in the middle of those tensions all the time. But that's the very reason we pray that he is in heaven, that he has power to act. He has the power and authority to change things when you pray. Otherwise, why bother if God doesn't have the power? It's represented by the words, in heaven. He has the power to supernaturally intervene in the created order. Think of it this way, friends. To respond to the invitation to prayer is to acknowledge that God is susceptible to being moved to do the things you ask him to do and has the power to actually do it. Otherwise, we could compellingly ask, why pray? So God invites us to move him 
and that he has power to act. As our father, God is compassionate. God is approachable. He's motivated to act on our behalf because we are his children. As holy king, he has the power and ability to do what we ask him to do. Father and king. In this sense, heaven and earth are not like like distant and and a long uh, ways separated. In fact, heaven and earth actually overlap right here, right now. Think about it with me this way. In the Old Testament era, the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. It was the place that God had promised to come and dwell with his people. And in this sense, God's presence, known in the Old Testament as the Shekinah glory of God, actually came to rest on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. God's presence was there. But in the New Testament era, uh, God said, I'm going to change that. I'm going to come and live in all of my people. My presence will no longer be isolated and, 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 and dedicated to a, a particular place at a particular time, only accessed at certain times of the year by certain people known as the priests who wear certain kind of clothes. Heaven and earth are going to overlap where the Holy Spirit is present. And I'm going to pour my spirit out on all my people where God's kingdom is manifested. In this sense, heaven is meant to be breaking in on the earth wherever God is present, wherever his spirit is at work in the lives and the ministry of his saints, his church, his people. And in this sense, God's empowering presence through the Holy Spirit is already here on the earth. And so heaven and earth are are forever integrally related and locked wherever God's spirit is at work. In this sense, heaven is not far farther away than right here in this room. Heaven and earth are touching where God's spirit lives right here in us. In you. So to pray to our Father in heaven is to acknowledge our relationship with the living God, us as his children, he is our Father, we as his sons and daughters, that he is mercifully, powerfully, compassionately, compellingly at work where his spirit is poured out, his manifest presence is at work, and that is right here on the earth where his people are filled with his spirit. Well, part one of the Lord's Prayer continues. May your name be kept holy. You're probably more familiar with the words, hallowed be your name. Now, it's not hollow, as in empty space, a hollow tree trunk, but hallow, which means to sanctify or to set apart. The word in the original language means to consecrate or to dedicate something to God. Think about it. Well, let me share like this. I have a, a pair of old Adidas tennis shoes uh, that are sitting on the floor in my garage. You probably have a pair like this. Maybe they're work boots for you, a pair of old Red Wings or something. But anyway, they're worn, they're stained, they're paint splatters and grease. But man, they're really comfortable. But I only wear them like when I'm working around the house, you know, like mowing the grass or painting and and I uh, to, the, to the chagrin of my 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 kids, you know, I would never wear them like in public. You know, go to go to Target wearing my work shoes, never. And of course, they're, they're forbidden to come in the house, right? So they are. Think about them th- this way: they are sanctified, they are set apart and dedicated for a particular purpose. That's all the word really means when it's used in the Bible. And and in this way. We, we are to hallow 
sanctify and set apart the name of God in our prayers, in our life. Now, what, what does that mean? How are we to, to set apart the Lord's name as holy and blessed? How do we do that? Well, certainly it means that we would never use the name of the Lord as an expletive or a cuss or swear word. That's just a given. And certainly it wouldn't mean that we use it irreverently or, or casually or disrespectfully. But how do we pray in a way that hollows God's name? Well, perhaps it's helpful to think of it this way. We might say today, in our English translation, help us to honor your name. When you think of someone's name, it speaks of their character, doesn't it? Their reputation, their, their, their trustworthiness, their responsibility, their ability to do what you ask them to do or they say they're going to do. And in similar ways, God's character is revealed by his name. Now, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as Yahweh, translated into English as Jehovah. And in your Bible, it's often the word L-O-R-D, Lord, in small capital letters. That's what it means when you see that in all caps in the Old Testament. That's Yahweh or Jehovah. And there are, in the Old Testament, eight compounded names with Jehovah that reveal the five blessings that God intended uh, for us to associate with his character. There are five different dimensions of his character that that point to the fullness of blessing that comes in the person of Christ. In fact, I even love how Eugene Peterson translates this part of the Lord's Prayer. He says that we're to pray, Lord, reveal who you are. Now, when we pray for God's name to be honored or hallowed, for his name to be revealed, I think we're asking God to establish five core truths in our lives. Establish five blessings, and they all begin with the letter S for the sake of easily being easily remembered. Blessing number one is salvation, the forgiveness of sin and deliverance from its power. The name Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, reveals God's gift of forgiveness through his blood, the release of, of, of its grip on, on our life and our, our freedom in, in, in life. Jeremiah 23.6 is, those of you who like references for the, where these compound names are actually used, I'll give them to you. And then the name Jehovah Kadesh, the Lord who sanctifies, reveals God's intention for us to be set apart and dedicated for his particular purposes. Exodus 31.13. So blessing one is salvation, forgiveness from sin. Blessing two is the fullness of the Spirit. The S word is spirit. The name Jehovah Shalom means the Lord is our peace, Judges 6.24. It speaks of wholeness and harmony in relationship to God. And then the name Jehovah Shema means the Lord is there, Ezekiel 48.35. It speaks of the promise of God's continual abiding presence where his spirit is manifested. So the blessing of the fullness of the spirit. The third blessing has to do with health and healing or soundness. The name Jehovah Rapha means the Lord who heals you. Exodus 15, 26, I am the Lord who heals you. And it speaks of physical health 
and a soundness of mind and body. The, the fourth blessing has to do with freedom from the curse. That, has, that, that, that speaks of success. And here we see uh, the Lord revealing himself by the compound name Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. It's a revelation of God's willingness and desire to meet every need of his people. Genesis twenty-two fourteen. And of course, Jesus, uh, uh, we, we know from the, the, the writing of the, uh, of the Apostle Paul in Galatians, Jesus uh, shed his blood at the cross to remove from us the curse of the law and to inherit the blessing given to Abraham. And the last blessing, the fifth blessing, is freedom from the fear of death and hell, your future security. The name Jehovah Nissi means the Lord is our banner, Exodus seventeen fifteen, And the name Jehovah Roy means the Lord, my shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 1. So Christ is revealed as the banner of our salvation, having abolished death, having brought life and immortality. Our future is secured. He's the shepherd of our soul, leading, healing, guiding, protecting, providing. And so because these compound names reveal who God is, we can begin our prayers by recounting these five blessings salvation, spirit, success, soundness, and security. And we can tell God we're thankful that he's all of these things, that he reveals himself in these five ways. And we bless and honor God's name when we recount these blessings, when we thank God for these powerful inbreakings of his character and nature into our life, and we ask for his help to live them out fully. We ask the Holy Spirit to to reveal in our life anywhere where we might be taking the Lord's name in vain. And I'm going to suggest to you that what that might mean is that when we're submitted to Christ and the fullness of who he is in us, our righteousness, our peace, our joy, our healer, our provider, our protector, our shepherd, our guide, and any way that we're not experiencing the fullness of who he reveals himself to be might be an area in our life where we're, we're... living his his name in vain. We're not fully experiencing everything that he's already provided for us in Christ. We are living less than he intends. And so we perhaps conclude this section of the accordion prayer with a desire to ask Jesus that our lives would more fully align with salvation and soundness and and success and uh, uh, security and the spirit. Those five S's, the, the revelation of the, of the name of God. We want to, to live our lives fully identified as his sons and daughters and in all that Jesus reveals himself to be. And in this sense, friends, we will honor his name. So this week, I want you to examine your biblical foundations, your practices, and your experiences of these realities. Are we living in community? Are we experiencing God as Father? Uh, is he the source and the seat of power and change in our life? And are we living a full expression of these five blessings? And then next week, we're going to unpack step two. Okay, Lord, we are so grateful that you give us a, a simple but powerful way of relating to you in this prayer. And I, uh, it's my desire, Lord, that that for every one of us in this church family, 
that our foundations would become centered in on the Bible, they'd be clear and compelling, that that our experiences in prayer would would rise up to all that you want it to be. And even this week, you'd shine the spotlight of your spirit in, in ways that we're falling short of, of living in the fullness of who you reveal yourself to be in our lives. And now, Lord, as we offer our hearts to you in worship, give you our gifts, we pray that you'd receive these for what they are, tokens that say we love you, we honor you, and we bless you in your name. Amen.